I was I'm trying to think of what we're actually going to talk about like before we get to talking about the main thing we're going to talk about but it's just going to be quarantine chat it's every it's always quarantine chat uh the sheer monotony of life means that you can't really do any small talk I think well we haven't uh, we haven't heard what Anton has to say about quarantine so okay let's see okay what okay say. By the way, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hoekelein, São Paulo, Brazil. Phil Cunliffe is in Canterbury. George Hoare is in London. And our guest today, once again, it's great to have him back, uh, Anton Yeager. Hi, Anton. How is quarantine treating you? It's fine. I'm uh, stuck in Corporatus, Belgium, um, which is a kind of island of, of post-war welfareism. So it's it's all fine. They could be worse places to be. There's worse places to be. Have you got troops on the streets? What's the lockdown like? No troops on the street. It's not quite as authoritarian as the French one, but not as libertarian as the German one. It's somewhere in between. Um, it's highly technocratic. Everyone listens to the experts. Everyone's so happy that they have to listen to the to the experts. But um, the social effects have been, or at least the economic effects, have been comparatively milder compared to other nations. Why is that? Uh, because Belgium still has a lot of these Keynesian stabilizers in place because it didn't have a government in 2010 when all these uh, public debt crises hit. So they never had the political manpower to actually implement austerity. And they just kept on going from one attempt to form a government to another. And that means austerity never kicked off. They only really started doing austerity in the second half of the 2010s. But it means you still have really generous unemployment insurance. You have, of course, you have public health care. But all of these stabilizers are still in place. And it means... We missed a trick there. Like the demand so Belgians, in the 2010s should Belgian, have been... It should have been for, for no government. Not for no government in any anarchist sense, but just rule well, by bureaucrats, no elections. And uh, they're all no, been on the austerity. No, but the weird thing is then, because basically what you're saying... So state failure in Belgium... Um, kind of Keynesian state failure in Belgium means that the economic effects aren't so severe, whereas in the US and the UK, state failure in terms of not having a proper medical infrastructure is exactly part of the problem. So Absolutely. Silicon Valley's been proved right. Fail, <clears throat> fail early. That's what you need to do. Fail in 2010s so you don't have to fail now. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you could say they have Greece and that's a different story now, or even of Italy, which had a pretty gruesome 2010s and is bound to have a pretty gruesome t- 2020s. But I think it's more not state failure, but more state paralysis, because the Belgian state is bureaucratically quite competent. Uh, there's just no capacity for will formation, or there's no sense of how you impose unity on this particular state. So it's just a very big administrative machine that everyone hates, but never, no one could get around of. And which in times of crisis actually does its job painfully well. Well, wasn't that the, the critique of um, the um, high proportion of jihadis in Belgium and the terror attacks in Belgium was all the overlapping jurisdictions and authorities between different security agencies and police forces was symptomatic of state failure, effectively? No? Yes. Yeah, I agree. But that's a particular kind of state failure, which I prefer over like British state failure, which has its own problems. I think the biggest problem in Belgium is that uh, it's really a state without a nation. And because there is no kind of national culture to support statecraft, this creates all kind of pathologies such as this jihadist episode and all that. Interesting. Maybe maybe time for another for an episode on Belgium. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we should get on to the main topic today. Uh, which is inspired in part by Anton's recent article on damage, uh, which uh, you should all read. It's there in the the uh, show notes, uh, which is, uh, I, it might take a while before history starts again. Uh, and reading it felt like being told by uh, your that's, parents. That's the, the title. Ta- that's the title of the article, by the way, listeners. Not It's not what Alex was just saying. <laughs> no, but, it, but, but, but being told that did feel like being told by your parents that you don't get dessert until you finish your broccoli. Uh, so, Anton, why can't we have nice things? Or, or, in other words, can you summarize your article for us? I think the point of the article was, uh, first, the duty of memory, almost. Because as I 
I mean, as I and other people, I guess, also were observing what was happening in the first weeks of quarantine, it almost felt like the 2010s hadn't happened and people had forgotten what happened in the preceding decade and uh, saw a kind of almost sudden teleportation into a new world. And I wanted to say, like, let's actually take a really big step back and say, how did the 2010s lead into the 2020s? So why did left populism fail both in Europe and in America? And how is the failure of left populism leading into the new kind of COVID capitalism or the COVID world we're seeing today? And one of the main points I tried to talk about in the article is, well, the big problem of the 2010s was demobilization, which was the gambit that all these left populists ran into. So how do you do politics or how do you do mass politics in a time after mass politics? How do you mobilize in an age of demobilization? Uh, left populism had a variety of solutions to that problem. I don't think any of them had a convincing one. And then 2020 is a kind of acceleration of the trends we saw in the 2010s, where demobilization is being amped up even further, and left populism, which is basically rendered irrelevant by history. Okay, but would you, I mean, the, the claim that the 2010s was characterized by demobilization, I mean, surely it's the 90s and 2000s which were characterized by that. Uh, and maybe the 2010s continued that or maybe reversed it in, in some slight ways? Or do you think it really was the 2010s which uh, were mostly characterized by demobilization? No, ab no, absolutely. So I think demobilization shows that there's a problem in the 2010s, while in the 1990s and in the 2000s it wasn't theorized or articulated in the mm -hmm. same way as a problem. So you have a massive literature in the 2000s about abstentionism, people don't vote enough, people are not interested in politics, people are apathetic, so liberals are calling from, we need to get people interested in politics again. And in the 2010s, of course, people get interested in politics again, yeah. but so, like, unfortunately, they vote for the wrong things and they do all these dangerous populist experiments. But it's more that from the left, um, you try to do left politics without the classical social actors that were available in the 20th century to do left politics. Uh, and in that sense, demobilization is still a problem in 2010s, um, in a different way from the 2000s, I think. Yeah, I think it's quite, it's quite striking. The, I mean, this might be a kind of a crude way to put it, but in the 1990s and particularly in the noughties, you had this moral panic, particularly from liberals, about apathy and, you know, all of these solutions. How can we get people to participate? How can we get you know, voting rates up, how can we get not so much party membership, mainly just, you know, formal political participation. And then when people did start from maybe 2016 onwards, being more involved in politics, it was like, no, this is wrong. You're doing this entirely the wrong way. And the moral, the moral panic instead of apathy became around ignorance. And people were being taken for a ride. They were being mobilized essentially in the wrong ways. They weren't kind of reflective, liberal, deliberative citizens. They were flocking to the banner of various populists left right or center so yeah i think it it's it's yeah mobilization is the key the key point i would add another layer to that though it's not um it's not just a sociological phenomenon or just a phenomenon of historical memory or experience but also political um in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s there was an explicit hostility to political organization, to political authority, to political leadership. Um, and even in the parties that emerged in the wake of um, the Indignados and the um, protests in Sigtagma Square in Athens and so on, um, all of those emerged from, you know, they were, they tried to incorporate the leaderless bottom-up um, feel of those um, kind of mass movements against austerity in the early days of the 2000 of the crash or in the aftermath of the crash in the early 2010s. So, and that, you know, there was a long tradition of um, political theory, which was um, on political theory on the left, which was explicitly hostile to traditional forms, traditional social constituencies, traditional social bases on the left. And also that sought to eschew traditional methods of organizing that chose to um, be explicitly populist, um, Podemos being the most explicit example, but Syriza as well to a lesser degree, that chose to kind of incorporate all sorts of um, different groups and trends into the left. And anyway, all my point is to say that it was um, it wasn't simply um, it wasn't simply something which was, uh, you know, kind of an unconscious tide. There was also a very conscious effort to bad. This is how we want to do this. 
and the organizational forms and the political theories and all the political ideas and concepts that came out of that period have been tested to destruction and nothing is left now since um, since Bernie Sanders capitulated to Biden. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that diagnosis and I think that additional layer is important insofar as you highlight that there was an active ideological commitment to forms of demobilization or the anti-organizational bias yeah. was very, very strong also on an ideological level. And I think this speaks to something that I haven't properly thought of, but which I think I'll think about more, is that we tend to underestimate the organizational continuity between the 2000s and the 2010s, mainly on the left. So the protests against the Iraq war and all these movementist moments in the 2000s actually resemble quite a lot what the first responses to uh, uh, to the recession were, basically. So in 2008, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, whether it's the student protests in the UK, whether it's the Indignados in Spain, or the Squares movement in Greece, is that you have an essential continuity between the movementism of the 2000s and of the 2010s. It's only around the middle of the 2010s that you can see various forces on the left seeing the limits of this movement this moment saying okay this is not the way we're going to get our victories and trying to think through uh, the limits of that approach and coming up with a variety of solutions which at the end of 2019 and certainly at the beginning of 2020 look uh, historically superseded almost yeah and i mean we've done a lot of uh, what the americans call monday morning quarterbacking i think that's what they call it uh, where you retrospectively go and what look at what should have been done. Um, you know, and what left populists maybe should have done uh, over the preceding period. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing the global financial crisis and its political consequences over the past decade. But suddenly uh, we're now having to look more forward in a, in a complete I guess with a completely different lens to what we've been doing because uh, <laughs> because we have this crisis, this huge crisis looming up ahead. I mean, I was joking on Twitter the other day, but I think it's kind of true that, you know, we spent lots of liberals, especially spent the past decade uh, worrying about the new 1930s, that we're going back to the 1930s uh, now. Um, and now we're actually getting it for real, at least in terms of like the <laughs> economic depression that's that's coming on its way. But because society is so demobilized, we won't get fascism because we also don't have the possibility of communism. Uh, so with that in mind, um, how do we interpret the, the failings of left populism and where that leaves us uh, in terms of confronting the impending crisis? <clears throat> no, I mean, my point is about, and I think I have to be really cautious here insofar as how I express myself, but I think at least the right questions were asked in the 2010s, even if the wrong answers were given. So I'm not willing to embrace the view that the 2010s were just a wasted decade. I mean, a wasted decade means that there was something to waste. I don't think the 2000s gave us anything yeah. to waste yeah. in any sense. And um, what you're seeing now at the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, though, is a kind of renewed split or a sort of retrogression or a return to these pre-2010, pre-2011 modes of organization, where, as we said, the first day after Jeremy Corbyn lost his election in December 2019, he went back to his uh, anti-American protests. He was protesting the Iranian invasion. Uh, you can see that on the ultra-left, loads of people are now saying this proves that electoralist politics is a dead end. You should join my commune or you should uh, join this particular value form reading group. So you see a, you see a return to... <laughs> You see a return to all of these symptoms that were very prevalent pre-2011, and in a sense, it's exasperating because you say, well, this, I mean, this is why pop left populism got going in the first place, because people were realizing the limits of this. And I'm really afraid that people will actually not learn the historical lessons. So I wonder, um, is that going to be the case? I mean, I think especially in the Anglophone world, I mean, especially the UK and the US, uh, the sort of left populists are still licking their wounds. I mean, in a very immediate sense in the US, because Bernie's just dropped out. And in the UK as well, uh, especially because of this report that's come out that's showing how much backstabbing there was going on and uh, undermining. Of I know. Wasn't that incredible? But I mean, nobody expected that at all. It was such a shock to hear the yeah. report about how much sabotage there was internal to the Labour Party. Amazing. Anyway, it definitely I, means that everyone should stick with the Labour Party and that next time, next time it will all turn out OK. 
you layered but, the the sarcasm on a little bit thin. Do you want another? You want to stick another <laughs> layer on there? Can I can I say something very aggressive about this? Insofar, we go for it. Yeah. In so far as the way that I think, so you say licking their wounds, but I think you're being way too nice here. I think there's been a massive historical defeat. Uh, the left yeah. has been the left has been humiliated, certainly yeah. in Britain, for a generation, and I have a big, big fear that this predicts uh, what the fate of this post-Bernie American left will be as well. I hope it won't be so, but I'm afraid it might be if you look at what AOC and the other transitional figures are offering. Insofar as their main complaint about this report is they, they didn't play fair. Uh, we, we, we thought they were going to stick by the rules and they were bullies. But the fact that you see these people as bullies and not necessarily as your enemies yeah, yeah. Means, means that you were never serious about power in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, so why was there an assumption that they were going to play by the rules and why did you not have this more ruthless commitment to maintaining power? Um, and now you can't you can't cry wolf about the fact that they didn't play fair because it's that's what it's also yeah, beyond that though as well they it's not they also kind of um, they say this is not ideological it's sociopathic is one of the taglines that has been shared on social media about the report um, of the Labour Party and also the um, the idea and also tra trotting out the usual kind of complaints about it being racist. Um, so you know lots of vicious hostility no doubt towards Diane Abbott. But nothing that I've seen, at least thus far, suggests that it was overtly racist or even Sorry, implicitly just, just racist. For the sake, just for the sake of the listeners, because if we're discussing this for a little bit longer, we should be uh, clear for, for people's sake who aren't familiar with uh, with Britain and what's happened and what this report is. Can someone give a, a short precy of uh, what it is? Yeah, George, you're British. What's happened? I, I am. Thanks. Um, for pointing it out. Yeah, so basically uh, a load of leaked WhatsApp messages proved that the or very strongly suggested that the right of the Labour Party was not fully behind Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I mean, it's it, I, I, I don't want to give too too biased a, a summary. I'm sure I'm assuming that people have listeners will have, have come across this. It basically just revealed that there is a an ideological battleground within a political party. Um, but I think there, yeah, I think this is the when I'm being more optimistic about this, I think there is there is a, an important lesson to be learned here about what politics is, that it's not about it's not about morals and it's not about kind of having the right the right way of doing things and, and having kind of playing by the rules within your party. It's about who wins and who loses. And the left of the Labour Party got got clearly beaten. I mean, all that enthusiasm, all that um, kind of energy that I think was you know, so appealing about left populism throughout Europe and, and the States, that that has to be reckoned with. But ultimately, this was mainly a group of people who were coming to politics for the first time and they got outmaneuvered and defeated within the British Labour Party. Um, I think, in fact, relatively easily, given given their, you know, the, the possibilities that they potentially had at one point. Yeah, which is tragic, but at the same time, understandable. I mean, you can pass through failures and if you learn from them, that's okay, and you might say that it was a is a it was a worthwhile no, effort. They're not, but they're not even yeah, learning the right but, but, lesson. No, no, exactly. Because, this, this no, is what but we're getting they're not right. learning the right lesson either. Because um, you know, uh, with respect, I mean, I you know, I take with respect to Anton's point, I take it that there was the way in which they've responded to the leaks is um, playing the kind of the ingenue, the faux naïf, and this um, indicates you know their essential lack of seriousness. But at the same time, they don't realise that they lost in front of the voters. And they seem to think that if they only manage to resolve, you know, their internal kind of shenanigans and if they play all of this out in public, they're complaining about the fact that the newspapers are leading with the coronavirus rather than leading with the internal problems of the Labour Party. Um, completely oblivious to the well, fact I mean, that that's what also they hypocritical offered to the British they... voters wasn't sufficient. Also hypocritical because they complained that the papers were focusing too much on Labour's internal splits, undermining their electoral campaign, and now they're complaining that the newspapers aren't focusing enough <laughs> on their internal splits. Yeah, so, I mean, right. yeah, you can't have it both ways yeah. in that regard. Um, but I agree that there's a naivety there, or at least if there was a naivety, they should shape people, shape people up and put them straight, uh, and that they should be naive no longer. But I guess, uh, as you guys are saying, that the response has generally been one of uh, they bullied us rather than uh, these are ideological enemies to be defeated. Um, 
To move it on a little bit and to refer to Anton's article, so come to Anton first. Uh, Anton, you wrote that the left's real trauma might be that neoliberalism died without them actually killing it. So could you explain this out for us? Yes, I think, I mean, it means what it means, but I'm not entirely sure whether it still means what it means. Insofar as I wouldn't express it that strongly now, I think... It's not that neoliberalism is what, dying. What, two weeks later? I mean, come on, what's changed? <laughs> yeah, come on, Anton. <laughs> Own it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's situational analysis. That's always a kind of, uh, as I say, transitional element to it. But it's more that it, neoliberalism is definitely losing its coherence. If you see that the, the number of recipes that have been rolled out against the COVID crisis, whether it's QE, whether it's uh, all these new welfare programs, some of them are in clear continuity with the crisis fighting that was deployed post-2008, uh, buying up uh, whatever bank bonds, for example. But at the same time, you can see that the degree of intensity to which they're being deployed or the quantity in which they're being deployed is just a qualitative jump to anything we've seen in the 2010s. So even if some forms of neoliberal governance are still surviving, it's also clear that we're moving into something completely different. And I think the left problem in this analysis is that the left presupposes that the end of neoliberalism will be the beginning of something more left-wing, which is clearly not yeah. the case. I, mean, I think I, what I just wanted to I just wanted to say on, on my part. I mean, every time I've made an argument or even posted an article, whether it's by you or Phil or whoever, uh, arguing that we're seeing the the end or the crumbling finally of, of neoliberalism, people react by saying no, but you know, the the politicians or the elites or whoever are still being mean. I mean, that's basically the yeah. essence of yeah. what they're saying, as if. <laughs> As if meanness uh, or, 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 you know, class domination was not a feature of previous periods. And that's just fine. And it yeah. just shows what a moralized notion of neoliberalism people have been operating yes. under. Uh, and the left are more attached to neoliberalism than, than the capitalist class or the ruling elite themselves. Well, OK. I mean, that can be debated. And I think we probably will have to explain that out. And, what, and you'll have to explain out what you mean by that, Phil. Um, in a I think Phil should explain that now. It, OK, I mean, this Phil, is, this explain is... it. Explain it. Yeah. This is a key point. Well, in the sense that they're the character of the critique that they carry, um, and they're wedded to understanding what they oppose very in one very particular way. And in seeing it in that way, they find it impossible to imagine that it might change, and therefore they still insist on the fact that we have something in front of us that simply doesn't exist anymore. And I think that speaks to the fact of just how deeply buried in um, conservative in many ways the left is. It's unwillingness to acknowledge that the context is changing. It's unwillingness to acknowledge the fact that um, capitalism itself is highly adaptable. It's unwillingness to acknowledge the adaptability of um, the ruling class of political elites. And that, mm. I, okay, think, okay, but I think, instinctive... Sorry, just to push you, Phil. I think it's going to have an important strategic consequence as well, that if the left is more attached to the idea of neoliberalism, I think it's quite is we've already seen it it's it's state capitalism this is the this is the figure on the horizon for the next decade if the left still keeps attacking the right or the center and saying you know you're neoliberals look at all of these kind of things the, these models which used to hold they still essentially hold they they'll miss there'll be a kind of a misidentification of where the 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 enemy is and that could be really uh, dangerous so I think if we're going to do this seriously, we have to do two things. One is sketch out at least the kind of contours or some of the main pillars of what the future arrangement will be like, right? What this, if it's state capitalism, then what are the main features of that as distinguished from neoliberalism? And secondly, explain how the left remains neoliberal when the world has moved on. Um, because I, I, we can state it, and I kind of agree, but also uh, I think there might be lots of people who aren't convinced by that. So I think we do. We should maybe set ourselves the the task of at least trying to do that right here and now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean this is this is highly conjectural, but I think um, people are coming around to the fact that the Chinese response to the virus might at, at first have been very shambolic and catastrophic, but in the long term was the best at actually suppressing it. Um, which is clearly also a sort of boon or reputational boost to the Chinese model. So I think not only is it a political boost, but it's an economic boost insofar as the Chinese state controls credit. Uh, it has a massive, massive hold on parts of the private sector. And I think they're looking at this and going, well, I mean, uh, if we want a functioning tech sector, or if we want to innovate in all these technological products, then we'll have to be a bit more like China. Um, and at the same time, I think what you can also see is just forms of what you could call COVID corporatism. Um, insofar as 
Neoliberalism is all about securing private capital's control over investment by means of the state. So it's a state making sure that no one interferes with the market. And in the face of the virus, we can clearly see the limits of this because private capital is absolutely not up to the task of maintaining what uh, public safety. But what the state is now doing is saying, well, I mean, if we give contracts to the state and if we do these real public-private initiatives, uh, we'll be able to actually create a more profitable or a more stable capitalism than the one we had before. And the way I talk about left-wing attachments to neoliberalism is not in a sort of positive ideological sense, as Phil would put it, but I'd say there's a nostalgia for an age of what you could call a harder, less soft state or, or a sort of ruthless state, which is now clearly disappearing into the background. And the main pro proposals from the left, such as whatever basic incomes or cash transfers, are essentially neoliberal proposals insofar as they, met, they serve to shore up the market uh, in a particular way. And by sticking to this, you're basically showing like, look, what Sunak is doing is that it's basically executing labor's programs, but in an even more ambitiously redistributive way. Because um, as I said, like Belgium has unemployment insurance. Uh, what Sunak is doing is almost nearing the Belgian product. And Bernie even said this at a certain point where he said, I think the best crisis fighting or the best anti-COVID response we've seen has been Rishi Sunak's uh, stimulus plan um, in, in the end. And this shows how the political field has been completely reshuffled. In the so I think, I mean, what I would kind of add to that to build on what Anton is saying is, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure everybody on social media will be able to find an example of some state policy um, that is, you know, kind of uh, just continuing. Some idiot uh, who says something, for instance, uh, Rishi Sunak, the British Chancellor, um, made an offhand remark about how worried they are now about rising levels of indebtedness and it'll all have to be paid off. And people are already assuming that this means um, there'll be neoliberal austerity again. Um, you know, so it's always possible to find, um, you know, as kind of uh, one era passes into another, it's obviously um, there's lots of overlap it's um, and lots of shades of grey. And there will be lots of evidence to suggest that the old era is um, stretching into the future because it genuinely is the real the real. So it's not about identifying um, uh, new policies, I think, as opposed to old policies. I think the real issue is the fact that the political authority of neoliberalism has completely disintegrated. It's no longer it will be no longer possible to um, glorify something, to privatize something as an act of kind of benediction and glorification. It won't be possible to suggest that privatization is the be all and end all of state policy. They'll be forced simply by virtue of necessity. They've been forced to innovate new policies, and and the political the political kind of bandwidth and the different kind of political options, the different levers that are now very evidently um, within state capacity, everybody, they're very visible and um, people won't forget that. So I think it's the political authority of neoliberalism that has crumbled, even if certain policies yeah. and institutions will survive. I mean, it, just to push back on that, because I mean, the, the argument, the counter argument would be that uh, that was already the case. You know, I mean, we've we've been us, we've been talking about this for, for quite a while. And, you know, yeah, in, in leading Western nations, there hasn't been any major trumpeted privatization, I don't think, in in uh, in recent years. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. So, you know, that had already happened. OK, this pushes it further along the line. Um, so it's the switch over from austerity, I think, that's the most striking under a Tory government. But again, you know, I mean, it's accelerating things. Um, the virus has no plan. It has no manifesto. It has no party program. It has no organization. It has no political structure. Oh, it has no supporters. It's a horizontalist. Supporters. It's like it's trying to occupy the squares. Yeah, yeah it, almost so, like, it almost sounds like the left. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't, it a, isn't it kind of a rhizome of, of, of sorts? Yeah. So the point right. being, it's accelerating trends that were already there. And Boris Johnson was already, um, you know, gearing up in Britain for a renewed one nation conservatism. And the virus has simply accelerated that process. Yeah, there's, I think there's, this is where the danger comes in for the, for the left. Because um, in wanting to keep the idea of neoliberalism, I mean, what, what does this actually give politics? It, I mean, it gives it quite a clear moral cast. And this is, I mean, not recognising that actually austerity it's, can, can be thrown out quite easily by, by, by the ruling class. It's not, it's not necessary. Um, there's, you know, that the risk is that you, you try and re, you know, repackage and reformulate what's actually going on in too simplistic moral terms. But that's never going to work. 
I mean, the 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 only real criticism of a kind of state capitalist solution, which is, you know, which is not from a social democratic point of view, those two things not being necessarily all that different is is saying well actually what 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 do we want that would have been different from the from a state capitalist solution to post neoliberalism yeah. well, and think, it's well, typically maybe, uh, intersectional <laughs> so um it's typically well it is right so owen jones in britain kind of complaining about the um he was very the lockdown left uh, of which owen jones is part have been very vociferous in arguing for the lockdown to be prolonged and also demanding it, that it had been set up earlier. And then they complain about the cops arresting black people. Um, and now that, you know, so it's that they want, all they can do is kind of still use the kind of the neoliberal, the left neoliberal politics where they demand that things be applied in a particular way to different minority groups. I think that's right. I mean, I my I think I've made this point already on on a previous podcast, but you know, who cares? I'm going to make it again. Uh, but that you end up with the, the the well actually left, where the left becomes completely parasitic on yeah uh, on, exactly. on on the the establishment and just uh, acts as its moral and intellectual guardian. So saying that the application of say uh, capitalist policies is not done in the correct way you know according to the evidence or whatever uh, or is immoral because it falls unequally on certain groups and so on um, without challenging the fundamentals of it um, but I, I wanted to propose maybe a very simplified way of uh I guess portraying the conundrum and you know disagree with it if you, if you think it's if it's wrong but you know over the past 30 years the left has been used to arguing against the state against the contemporary order as uh, they don't give us enough they don't give us anything or they punish us and now it'll have to deal with they're buying us off and how do you deal with buying us off because it's not you know the left has not been used to dealing with that sort of arrangement since the 1970s would you agree with that 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 might be the I guess the the tension or the pivot instead of they don't give us anything it's they're trying to buy us off and if the left doesn't realize that and sees uh left-wing politics or progress purely as a question of will the state give us a little bit more will it give us some extra crumbs then it'll um, misunderstand the nature of the coming period and also how to oppose capital effectively yeah i absolutely agree with that and I think the historical lesson for this is that capitalism has always had public and private moments. So this is what I say in the article as well, insofar as there is both a social and a private tendency within capitalistic accumulation where you reprivatize and you re-socialize. So I mean, even, even what the Second International was discussing before the First World War, where cartels and trusts and all these big financial institutions fusing into each other was basically leading to a massive involvement of the state in capital accumulation. It's just that people need not confuse this with any form of socialism. And I think you should keep your nerve and be very clear and say, what, what's actually, what is actually socialism? If the state gets involved in investment, what is it that we're putting forward that's different from what capitalism is already doing by itself? And just to, to mention the, the dangers of the well-actually left you described before, I'm reminded of, um, I mean, I've often said that we need a story about neoliberalism after 2008 that's a bit about the death of the Ancien Regime. So uh, the Ancien Regime persists for a long time. It takes a long time for these landed elites to actually completely let go of power. So 1914, the war is already a first blow. And then the 1920s and mass democracies in the second one. Then in the 1930s, they get back in the saddle with fascism. But then in 1945, as the Soviets invade and basically crush all these remaining landed elites and redistribute their land, um, it's very clear that the Ancien Regime is now over. But you still had a German and Communist Party after the Second World War who was convinced that the Ancien Regime still existed and who basically justified voting for the CDU out of these terms because they say, well, this is the, the bourgeois revolutionary party that's bent on not reviving the Ancien Regime. So it's basically used as an excuse to liquidate yourself into a part of the managerial class. And there's a historical parallel now where if you convince yourself that neoliberalism is still the biggest danger, then you'll actually just be allying yourself with a part of the capitalist class that is already burying neoliberalism itself. And this, yeah. is exactly, this is exactly what you were hinting at, Alex, insofar as the main accusation from the left has been one of mismanagement. 
insofar as they're mismanaging the neoliberal transition, it's not intersectional enough, it has a disproportionate, disproportionate effect, the lockdown should hit everyone equally. Um, there, but there's no deeper sense insofar as like, what is it about the capitalist state, what, it, what it's doing, that is not compatible with our program? What is different from our program? Well, that seems to me to be valuable because that seems to me to be, um, it forces clarification. And um, notwithstanding the, you know, notwithstanding the sympathy for um, left populism that I imagine, um, you know, some of you feel and some of the, some I'm sure some of our listeners feel, um, its flaws were very evident um, and they had to be actively ignored and suppressed in order to put any hope in the viability of left populism. And as you said, Anton, in your Jacobin article a while back, you know, they we gambled the house and we lost on on it. And it's been spectacularly vindicated in Bernie Sanders' early capitulation to Biden um, before the convention even. So, I mean, the point is, I think it should force clarification. What does it mean to be socialist if it doesn't simply mean state intervention in the economy? If that's what the Tories and the Republicans are doing and Donald Trump even is doing and other governments will follow and are doing already... Um, the CDU in Germany and so on, then what does it mean to stand for, to mean to be left-wing? And I don't That's think... That's good. I mean, this is good, though. This is good it if, it, That's forces what I'm saying. Us, it is if good. it forces us to articulate that. Because Political I think clarification. Yeah. I think we've been a little bit too... It's, in some ways, the left had it easy because we've said, oh, yeah, all we need is a bit more state intervention. Now that's happened, what do we actually want? We, you know, we have exactly. to develop those ideas. Um. Can I, I, add I was hoping that? that there'd be as much radio silence as possible just to, um, as a sort of ironic <laughs> moment to say that we have nothing to say on this, uh, which would be really damning. But we're talking. It's fine. We have ideas. We no, have we should, we should, we should actively have more radio silence. It actually draw, <laughs> it draws the listener in. So uh, you should have interrupted there because Anton was going to make this incredible point because the leader, the, the, re the listener, not the reader, the listener had been drawn in by all that silence. Yeah, I want to, I want to return to the, the main left critique being one of mismanagement. Um, so it's not about the left just turning itself into a left-wing pressure group of the FT or vindicating the FT as the reasonable voice of capital and all these kinds, but it's also about um, a complete, sorry, a complete inability to actually distinguish yourself from what the capitalist class is already doing. Insofar as <clears throat> I'm thinking of someone like Owen Jones, who really launched his career in 2007 with the Chavs book, which was at the time sold as a sort of tacit return to class or sort of neo-materialist story insofar as the demonization of the working class that had happened under Blair and the fact that they were now all shown in these really humiliating reality shows or that they were portrayed as these criminal classes, as Chavs, which are either the objects of charity. Um, or which were the objects of demonization. And he tried to turn this around and say, like, no, the working class does deserve dignity. But what is very, very typical about Owen Jones's approach to this is that he replaces the politics of demonization with the politics of sentimentalization. So it's a politics of pity um, that yeah. actually replaces the, yeah. the politics of cruelty. And the, the thing is, and Nietzsche saw this very on, is that pity and cruelty are actually two sides of the same coin. They're both affects that are practiced from a position of superiority. So it's only if you're a master to someone that you can exercise pity or that you can exercise cruelty. And this was very clear in the 2019 Labour election campaign, where Labour was mainly asking British voters to just like be a bit nicer, try and be a bit nicer, treat these uh, these awful people who have suffered so badly under austerity a bit by, uh, nicer. And this culminated in this famous mirror front page that Phil mentioned as well, where they said, vote Labour for them which showed how agency was completely absent from that particular story. And I think the trauma of Owen Jones now and why he's been so particularly vociferous is about the lockdown having these disproportionate effects is that he's, he's actually recognizing his own Frankenstein's child in Tory policy, which is also a, a politics of pity, but it is a politics of pity which doesn't fully conform to the kind of constituency he thought out for that new form of politics. So cruelty is giving away to, uh, to pity, but pity doesn't imply agency. And precisely because Owen Jones couldn't give the working classes agency, that's why the 2010s were such a sobering experience for the left, I guess. I think that's really well put. I'm actually, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but I wonder to what extent that is a feature of, especially of, of the Anglophone left. Whether, you know, th this sort of moralized character um, to politics, I find it especially acute in Anglophone politics as a whole and consequently on the Anglophone left. I don't know to what extent 
it's a it's so much a feature in you know France or in Germany or Spain um, where I, yeah I mean so that's a question I don't know if, if Anton you have any comment on that I mean I notice it quite a lot in Brazil because the left is completely defeated and and fragmented here um, with Bolsonaro's election it, it didn't really recover from after being wrong-footed in in 2013 with the 2013 protests uh, and then defeated in the impeachment uh, it hasn't ever really recovered um, and so it's has slipped into this sort of moralizing register you know don't please don't hurt us so badly um i don't know if that's the case in you know as i said um any western european country you care to pick which uh, isn't english speaking i mean I, I couldn't as you say extrapolate that easily towards the other european cases i know that for example in germany with the linka you had a similar issue of what they call like the moralistic left there I don't necessarily think Spain had that problem because the configuration of parties was slightly different there. But it's more to say that the main thing the left was op- off- offering the 2010s was better administration, better management. Um, so they looked at this situation after 2008 and they said, we can do this better. We can design this better. This is badly done, uh, which is a kind of typical professional class approach to this problem because it looks at a particular institutional arrangement and says like, oh, if I just were in the laboratory and I could put these pieces back together, then it might function better. But there is no Leninist sense of what kind of social actor is available to force what kind of change of behavior on another social actor. And this is why if you just offer administration and not agency, it not only puts a large part of voters off, but in the end, as we say, uh, if the right does better administration, what the hell is your own ideology then? If your whole point was just better management. And I think this is the philosophical crisis we're seeing on the left now is that it's exactly forced to confront um, the distinctness of its own commitments vis-a-vis all these other actors which are already moving on. That's yeah. That's a. I mean, that's that. That's that's the issue that we have at the moment. No, no agency, and if there is no agency, then you have two sorts of critique. You either have one based on mismanagement, which will generally be maybe equality concerns, or you have a moral critique, um, which again is delivered from a position of of authority, but this time kind of moral rather than technical. And in both of those cases, it is a strange relationship that the left is trying to put itself into with relation to its constituency so but again uh, i mean i think yeah. it, it it's kind of exposed um in britain at least and it'd be interesting actually i don't know if you have any more insight about what's happening in um in continental western europe anton but in britain the the lockdown left is pushing hard for perpetuating the lockdown um, James Medway is, for instance, calling very hard that um, the government needs to hold its nerve in light of uh, of the economy um, losing a third of its value by the end of the year. And he says we should not um, public health should not be compromised. The lockdown must continue. So they're pushing very hard, and it seems to me um, that very that reflects not only their kind of authoritarianism, in the sense that the their instinctive response to anything is um, to um, control. The need for the state to kind of enact direct control of it, but also the fact that they their constituency is essentially middle class. Um, the idea that they would, um, you know, the idea that they could any in any meaningful way represent people who are still working in cramped and difficult conditions, distributing food, working in warehouses, um, you know, all of that, that just doesn't occur to them at all. So, in I think in terms of you know how the um, how the left is adapting to the situation and how the left is trying to respond to the new types of state intervention in the economy that we're seeing also shape, also again reveal just how deeply middle class it is, how it speaks for a particular constituency and it does it in many ways, um, you know, in ways that are also fairly obvious. The only thing that it asks is this, its solution is not, to, um, is not uh, concerned with civil liberty but with ensuring that everyone gets arrested. So if some, you know, if the cops pick up a black guy, make sure you pick up a white guy too. If um, if the middle classes get to work at home, put everybody on the state's payroll, <laughs> not just the middle classes. <laughs> um, wait, wait, Alex, can I add something to that quickly? Yeah, so I would be a bit more lenient on all the forms of crisis fighting that are currently happening because if you don't have agency, and I, I mean, I think agency will become impossible until this thing gets stabilized in some way. Um, I'm I'm just more open to some of these options. 
what you can what you can see is, I mean, there's two points to be made. The first is a large part of the left now they've given up on electoral politics are either turning to central banks. So this is where I said like central banks are basically becoming the new subjects of history for some people because it's true they play such a disproportionately large role in stabilizing capital markets and stabilizing accumulation today. Um, but there's almost a sense of as if they're the Lenins of our time, which shows the the historical poverty of the kind of agents that the left uh, recognizes it in today. But at why the would same- you say the Lenins of our time for central banks? I don't follow. Well, because they're the only ones who are able to seize a historical opportunity and um, actually move us into the next epoch. They're revolutionary agents in that way. Lenin's in our time is, I'd say, more in an aesthetic way. I don't think in any like substantively political way. It's just that the way sometimes but people... That they have a, but that they have an explicit vision of what they want rather yes. than just firefighting, hosing us down with money. Yes, absolutely. So it's not just, as you say, firefighting, but there is almost a sense of which they have a political vision they want to impose on society. So what is what is it then? Well, I mean, the idea is basically that central banks are buying up the stocks of pretty much every company in the economy. And it's a, it's what you could call a Meidner plan from above. It's a socialization by the central bank, where the Japanese option is that the central bank almost owns the entirety of the assets in the economy. And then the point is, well, you can have a form of post-history and you can have a form of very stable capitalism where people are happy consumers and they might be very lonely and they might be sexually, uh, they might be sexually psychotic. But at the same time, at least you don't have all these economic ills that people suffered under neoliberalism. So the state owns the entirety of the economy through the central bank and it basically just manipulates these factors to make sure that capital accumulation continues in a stable way. So this was your tweet about um, central bank ownership being the economic base for an incel superstructure. Yes. I mean, this is basically what Japan (laughs) did in the, yeah, this is how Japan manages stagnation is that the central bank just buys and buys and buys more parts of the economy until uh, the state basically owns the entirety of the economy. And uh, you have a pretty stable society. It's just like about moderating capital's growth rates and making sure that uh, labor gets its fair share. But it's, as you say, completely marked by the absence of agency and by an intense form of social misery. I'm not opposed to it. I think it's better to the kind of American psychotic version of liberalism, uh, sorry, of neoliberalism. But at the same time, I don't really think it's a vision that leftists should get behind in any revolutionary sense. The one point, um, and I think I made this point on Twitter as well, but I think an additional worry for the left is now is that their key electoral base, which is basically metropolitan working classes, quite multicultural, diverse metropolitan working classes, plus the metropolitan middle classes and the student population. But I think what the Tory government has done by classifying parts of this uh, working class as essential workers, so you have an essential services economy that's growing. I think Tories will even be able to make inroads into the last remnants of the working class electorate. Yeah, easily, easily. Because a lot of these people realize, I mean, this is what I call the sort of goalism uh, in the age of COVID, where you have a section of the working class that allies with the more nationalist version of the bourgeoisie together with nationalist, um, the nationalist part of the middle classes. And as the goal shows, it's a it's a pretty stable and pretty cohesive uh, coalition that you can keep together for a long time. And I, I, I see possibilities for the Tories to step in that that, in that direction. But it was already, I mean, you know, that was already very clearly Tory intention. Um, the particular um, ethnic communities uh, in inner cities that they intended to target and they intended to snap off from Labour, um, they were already very clearly pitching to the working class. In the north, and um, I mentioned this on Twitter as well, the fact that um, it's northern working class voters, in fact, who've had the last laugh out of all of this because um, everybody, you know, they were scorned by the left when they turned away from Labour and supported the Tories because they would be punished with austerity and, uh, you know, a rigid um, austerian Tory regime, supposedly. In the end, they left the European Union as they wanted, and they've also, um, they're going to get more state spending than John McDonald, you know, more state spending that would make John McDonald blush. Um, so they ended up with everything. So, I mean, that again, that was already, you know, in the works and, the virus has just accelerated what was already there. I want to throw one more element into the mix, actually, uh, which is a, a real earth-shattering uh, development in, in sort of class dynamics, which is if even the conservative estimates in, uh, of the oncoming depression made by the IMF and, and many of the private 
uh, estimates are much more uh, doomly than that. And if there is a need for a further lockdown, let's say next northern winter, uh, what happens to a whole range of you know small business owners, the petty bourgeoisie, who have to basically shut up shop permanently? And you have the kind of proletarianization of, of the petty bourgeoisie, especially in somewhere like Italy, for example, where uh, that economy is, is particularly dependent and made up of a lot of kind of small capitals, much more than uh, much more than in. in, in well, I saw a so, tweet you know, by I saw a tweet by Matt Goodwin. Um, Saying that apparently, the, at the moment, at least in the poll, no, it wasn't by Matt Goodwin. Sorry, I think it was actually the Euro intelligence thing produced by um, Wolfgang Munchau, who also writes for the FT. Um, but he was saying that at the moment, the main beneficiaries in terms of opinion polling are the neo-fascist party in Italy, um, who are up by fourteen percent. So the Liga and Five Star are not at the moment benefiting from Italy's um, Italy's crisis within the euro. And that would be a classic, um, you know, that would be the classic kind of what you'd expect, in fact. So, I mean, presumably, if you get like small business owners folding, um, then presumably, you know, they'll go for, um, they'll tug national populists further to the right. Um, They'll want greater state support. They'll support national solutions. Um, That's what you'd expect is the kind of classical pattern. That seems like a possible hypothesis. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, presumably that would be... uh, the in- the left could conceivably make inroads there, but uh, right now it doesn't seem equipped to do so. It, it's it's just that the the figures that have taken on the transition out of the left populist age seem very bent on segmenting the left electorate within the middle classes. So I mean, Keir Starmer is a clearest example of this, and I'm, I wouldn't call it all machification, but there's a real sense in which Labour is threatening. Yeah, it's becoming a kind of broadband liberal, uh, broadband liberal party. That might retain some of the economic radicalism of the of the Corbyn years, which has some Blairite rhetoric, but I don't think there's any sense of what the new sociological base is they want to build to actually win these elections. And as you say, the big problem in the Trump era was already that the classical Trump voter was a middle manager. So someone who manages who manages a local McDonald's, who has bosses above him, so who has masters above him, but who also has employees under him or her, of course. And these are the people who overwhelmingly voted Trump. What the crisis is going to do is that it's probably going to save a massive stimulus. It's going to wipe out this entire section of middle management, replace it with AI. It's going to get rid of loads of small shop owners. Small small restaurants will be able to adapt to this new delivery mode. They'll be able to work with some of these new delivery apps. But I I think most of them won't actually survive it. So you'll have a massive social segment that's actually falling into a proletarian position. But I don't think that will correspond into any kind of natural left sympathies. Um, I think there will be a big, big massive resentment and a lot of antitrust sentiment against Amazon and the surviving surviving chains. And I think the right is thinking very hard and very tactically about what it can do with this new newly proletarianized population, basically. I mean, if you listen to, to Steve Bannon talk, for example, I mean, he's very much oriented to, to that segment. I mean, it was already explicitly kind of petty bourgeois nationalist politics. But I think under the impact of this coming crisis, it'll become even more so. So uh, maybe just to round this out, uh, last couple of minutes, I guess. Wow. Um, how do we want to approach this? I mean... Uh, if left populism is gone, is the left returning? Is it going to return to its kind of the movementist and horizontalist approach that it uh, that that occupied it for you know up until around maybe twenty thirteen or so? Um, I you know for me that just seems like shit. I'm gonna have to go back to thinking about that because <laughs> because for as much as the left as a whole is gonna have to go back uh, is gonna have to. Well, we'll need to, though uh, we've been saying that it might not, uh, need to uh, understand and return to what it means by socialism, uh, which is not just no. Some no, they won't. They but, won't do that. No, no, I know. The but, left... but 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 at the same time, uh, we also have to be thinking about in terms of what the left is doing. Uh, you know, we've been, we we've, we've been critiquing the limitations of left populism. Look at the possibilities and its limitations over the past you know, five years or whatever. Uh, if that's now gone, then, you know, where where will the left be over the next three years? 
But we have their answer already, you know, like um, we already have our answer, which is um, you can see what's happening with um, with the Labour Party. So disintegrating um, introspection, um, the same thing will presumably happen with Biden when he loses to Trump later this year. Um, completely, uh, you know, the assumption being that it's everything that went wrong is internal without any need to focus on what's actually on offer to the voters, um, without any kind of sense to about how they differentiate themselves from the right. Um, and that'll probably be the pattern. And I don't I mean, I think the you know, the there's been a tremendous boost to state power um, as a result of the COVID crisis, both in terms of its economic power and also in terms of its political power. That, I think, will be politically solidified and consolidated and we'll have there'll be new um, ways to justify state power. It will all be for the right. The left will encourage it um, by because, you know, the, the only thing they can think of is state intervention. And they will simply kind of be sniping from the sidelines as to what kind of state intervention they'd like to see. Um, but there will be no the idea of um, uh, strong, robust, collective participation in self-government, democ democracy and public, the public steering the new kind of these powerfully, these powerful new state forms that will emerge that will be nowhere. It'll only be left to the likes of us and maybe one or two other um, small insurrectionist groupings on the left to make the case for mass democracy and for um, self-government. Yeah, I think... Fun. Wait, you, George, you go ahead first, sorry. <clears throat> no, no, no. I, I, yeah, I was just... I was making a facetious point that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping it will not just be some podcasters but yeah i mean this is this is the real <laughs> risk isn't it that that the that the left takes two things as core one is that point that we talked about previously about mismanagement a kind of technocratic or maybe a, a equality inflected critique of the transition from neoliberalism into post-neoliberalism um and maybe the other thing a kind of moral critique a, a kind of a, a doing for rather than a doing by um the working class and i guess yeah that's that's i mean that's the challenge can we articulate a compelling vision of what the left looks like beyond state intervention because that ground's already been taken i mean and that's easier said than done i mean we could we have i think we have some ideas but there aren't really any institutions which we can try and get those ideas into at this this point in time yeah, I I broadly subscribe to both of those lines. The only thing I'd caution against is the mode of predicting we've become very accustomed accustomed to on the left is almost premised on an abdication of agency. So it's almost because we cannot control the outcome of this particular transition that we make predictions on where we'll be in three years. And I hope we gradually adopt the kind of attitude of saying like, well, I mean, it's it's not like any social actor is available. It's not that agency is present. It's just like, well, in a sense, the future is still open. I think you could make a claim on what's coming in the future that's still potentially valuable. So it I think, for example, what you're seeing in the U.S. with all these shop floor struggles in Amazon, um, you're seeing all kinds of conflicts that are arising out of this lockdown situation. Maybe there are certain figures that will arise from this wave of militancy and will find their way into electoral politics and actually realize, hey, here is a left coalition that can be uh, kept together that's not... Uh, filled with professional types that are really culturally alienating to their voters, that's actually interested in agency, that's also willing to take risks, um, that can make the right concessions and also can read strategic situations, maybe we'll see that left in the coming decade. What I think we fear now is that a large parts of the left after the disintegration of the left populist buck, the left is just returning to a non-functioning job scheme where you have a whole uh, sort of ecosystem of different publications and you have an ecosystem of all different kinds of tendencies which basically try and give incredibly precarious graduates like me some kind of solid uh, job prospects but which in the end um, will as you say try and get a spot on the administrative table and i think what you can see with navarra for example cozying up to the to the starmer administration is not just cynicism it's also not just uh, an attempt to ingratiate yourself with the new manager it's also not just an attempt to hold on to some form of job security. They thought a Corbyn administration was going to give them a job. That administration is not coming. Maybe Starmer will be able to, uh, yeah, give them some kind of managerial position. And that is, that is a... Isn't that cynical? 
It's deeply, it's deeply cynical, but I think it's also a rational response to market pressure in many ways. No, but I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm past the, there's obviously a lot of little cynical types there, but at the same time, I mean, as a, as a young millennial, the situation is so dire that I can excuse a lot of this, uh, yeah, a lot of this behavior, because as patron is, you have to professionalize as a beggar, because otherwise you're not going to survive. And um, in... In that sense, I'm, I'm not sure that just industrializing yourself into the workplace is going to work for these people either. Um, and I don't want to be eschatological or millenarian about it, but I think um, if there is a real wave of struggles that arises out of the workplace and you see that some people there are interested in politics, if there are some left types who are willing to cooperate, cooperate with those ba uh, people on a fair basis, then you might see more interesting left-wing experiments. Okay, and I think that will be a good place uh, to leave it. Thanks so much, Anton. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah. No, I hope this was helpful. No, it was, it was great. Um, I'm, I'm surprised Phil didn't want to jump in with his knobs, chobs, and bobs point that he's been dying to make for ages, because that would have been the moment for it. Or maybe you should record it separately and then insert it. <laughs> no, I don't think it needs, it, it doesn't need to be added. <laughs>